You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. For those that um, don't know me, my name's Jo um, and I'm the hub leader here, which means I lead the church um, and yeah, everything that Oasis do uh, in this area, which is a great privilege. And um, sometimes that means I also get up on a Sunday and, and do these talks. So in July, we uh, are doing this mini series. We've been doing this big series called We Need to Talk About. Um, and uh, every year we do it, every year it's where people kind of suggest and say, look, you know, the church either never talks about this or this is going on. Um, you know, can we, can we look at this? And, and one of the biggest themes that came up as we asked people this year was, you know, obviously what's going on in the Ukraine is made us all think again about war and about peace and what it means to be a peacemaker, what some of the things that Jesus taught around um, peace. So Gaynor sort of kicked us off last week and it was such a great talk, um, particularly her story at the beginning. So if you missed that, I really recommend that you uh, listen to the podcast, which is now online. Um, But she was talking about what it means to be a peacemaker, so to kind of start us off with that thinking. And today I'm going to be talking about this thing called the myth of redemptive violence. So firstly, let's start off, I think, by looking at what exactly that is. It may not be a phrase that you've heard before um, of what I mean when I say it. So that phrase itself comes from an incredible book by a theologian called Walter Wink. Great name. All theologians have like good names, I feel, don't they? Uh, but this book's called The Powers That Be. Um, and it's been, I think, probably one of the most influential uh, theological books that I've read in terms of shaping my views around justice, oppression and power and how power um, impacts so much of how we're structured as a society and how, um, yeah, it's just, it's amazing and pretty mind-blowing some of the things in there. So a lot of what I'm going to be talking about is from that book or inspired by that book. And I would recommend that if you want to dig into this stuff a little deeper. So the phrase myth of redemptive violence is something that uh, Walter Wink talks about in this book. And uh, this is kind of his his quote or his definition of it, if if you like. So the myth of redemptive violence enshrines the belief that violence saves, that war brings peace, that might makes right. It is the story of the victory of order over chaos by means of violence. And it is one of the oldest continuously repeated stories in the world. So that key thing of might makes right, that violence saves, that's kind of what we mean when we talk about this idea of myth of redemptive violence. And on social media uh, this week when I was... um, trying to find an image to post I always try to post sort of an image alongside what we're doing on Sundays and I was like okay what am I going to go with this violence I can't you know how do you you sort of have a picture that isn't horrendous and I kind of landed on this and thought it is still a horrendous image isn't it but in terms of um, when we talk about redemptive violence this is such a great image to describe what we mean because it's this it's an electric chair this idea that when somebody does something that we make it right by doing something to that person um, you know that that violence makes violence right again Um, and this has been talked a lot by somebody called Shane Claiborne which some of you will be familiar with his sort of writing and teaching he um is a kind of non-violent activist in america and um, does loads of amazing things wrote a book called jesus for president which is very good um, lots of his book all his books are good but his his latest one is called i think executing grace and it's about the death penalty and um he talks a lot about redemptive violence and where it's come from and obviously more relevant for a u.s context but again there's lots of really interesting really fascinating things um in that so i'd recommend that as another sort of thing to to look at 
but we've seen, I think, this this idea. You know, it's not it's not just in the U.S. Is it? I think we've seen redemptive violence throughout history, haven't we? So you know, in wars, in world conflicts, in lots of the sort of oppressive regimes and empires um, throughout history, violence is often used to control, to dominate, and to conquer. And we also see this myth in all kinds of literature and media, so particularly in films, books, in TV shows. So that kind of classic superhero narrative of like the bad guy does something bad and the only way to resolve the situation is for the good guy or the superhero to come in and destroy the enemy. Violence often gets responded to with violence, which ends up saving the day. So it might be something that we feel, oh, it doesn't apply or it's in America or it's, you know, but actually it is something that's kind of very much within our culture um, and yeah, perhaps a bit more kind of subtle or unspoken, but it is there. But the problem with this approach, it might work in, in narrative, but in real life, it doesn't really work. And I think the myth of redemptive violence is just that, it's a myth. Because in reality, violence often just makes something worse, doesn't it? It causes deeper problems, further destruction, death and chaos. And there's kind of a ripple effect that I think just stretches further and wider with every retaliation, with every violence that gets matched with violence. And then solving it often becomes harder. And the damage that's caused by that, I think, often stretches into you know, many generations. And I think there's lots of examples that we could look at where, where we see that. And this idea of a myth of redemptive violence, I think actually you, can, you could definitely say this was something that the Jewish people at the time of Jesus were, were very much living under. So the Roman Empire was this sort of crushing, you know, cruel system of domination that controlled people often through violence or the threat of violence. So, you know, pledge your allegiance to Caesar or be flogged or crucified. That was often the choice that people had, you know, obey or suffer. And crucifixion was one of the worst methods of torture and death ever developed. And that was actually an invention of the Roman Empire. So what did Jesus living under this crushing, oppressive empire who believed in redemptive violence have to say about how we should respond to violence and evil? So Sarah's just going to come up and read Matthew 5, 38 to 48, but the words will also appear on the screen. So this is Matthew 5, 38 to 48. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So as a teenager, I 
hated this passage because I thought it was basically like saying, you know, whenever does any, whenever anyone does anything horrible to you, you should basically just kind of roll over and, you know, let them do it, like let them take everything you have and completely humiliate you. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And as a young person, I had this massive heart for, for justice and fairness. It was so important to me uh, to do the right thing. It's still important to me. And I just couldn't understand why, if God was this God of justice, why should he, you know, want people to be treated like that? Um, and, and, you know, for people just to kind of oppress others and get away with it. And in that sort of feeling, I think there's something really important to acknowledge, because I think we all, don't we, have this desire for justice. There's something in us that kind of yearns for that, um, you know, some more so than others. But I think we want fairness. We want rightness. You know, when somebody does something evil, we want justice to be done. We feel like it's right for that person to, you know, pay for what they've done. Punishment is, it feels fair and right sometimes. And I think that desire for justice is a good thing. And I'm going to come back to this idea of justice a bit later on. So first, I just want to look at this passage because actually there's loads more going on here than we might think. And this is where Walter Wink's book is really going to help us. And it was actually this book that totally changed my thinking on this. And it's great. I'm really excited. Anyway, I'll get on with it. <laughs> um, so a few weeks ago, I, I spoke about this. I, um, I spoke a bit about progressive Christianity and I kind of what that, what that actually means. And I mentioned that Jesus often did this thing where he said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So Jesus was actually using a rabbinic idiom in, the, in that phrase. So it's the word say or amar was used by Jewish rabbis to mean interpret. So in terms of giving the like proper interpretation of the scriptures as to how to apply it. So Jesus often sort of preceded what he says with, you have heard it said, which means, you know, others have interpreted this particular scripture or God's word to mean one thing. But I say to you, meaning I interpret differently in the following way. And then he'd you know, say what um, yeah, his interpretation was. So so that's what we see uh, a couple of times in this passage. And we begin with this idea of an eye for an eye. So this was an Old Testament concept, and we find it in a few places, but this is it in Exodus 21, verse 23 uh, to 25. So, but if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So the idea is, is centred around this idea of reciprocal justice. If you take something from someone, you, shall, you should have that thing taken from you. And in Hebrew law, it was actually designed to keep the punishment in proportion so that you couldn't like, excessively punish someone for something they'd done and almost take more in return. So that's what, that's what this idea is. And Jesus begins by saying, you've heard it said, you know, this eye for an eye reciprocal justice thing, but I interpret that in a different way, which is this. And then here's what he says. So first of all, Jesus says to not uh, resist an evil person. So when I think of not resisting an evil person, I would assume that it kind of means, you know, don't, don't stop them. Just again, let them do whatever they want. But actually, the Greek word used for resist here is always used elsewhere in the context of violence. So it's what armies did in response to an attack to sort of take a stand or fight back or to respond to violence with violence. So you could argue that actually what Jesus is, is saying here is actually better translated as don't respond to evil with violence. So that's a really key point as we begin this passage. And then these sort of three examples that Jesus gives. So Jesus gives. So this idea of turning the other cheek, again, just feels to me like it's saying, you know, if they hit you once, you know, just let them hit you again. You know, don't stand up for yourself. And Walter Wink's interpretation is, is very different of that. So I mentioned, you know, Jesus was talking to people who were oppressed under this Roman Empire. You know, they were used to being abused and trampled on, being forced to obey Roman soldiers, whatever they were asked to do. 
And so notice that verse where it says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. So, okay, this, this, stay with me here. In Jewish culture, so you didn't hit somebody with your left hand. So, like, left hands and right hands were used for different things. So, one hand was seen as unclean and the other was seen as clean. So, for me to hit someone on the right... I thought about doing a practical demonstration, but <laughs> I thought, yeah, maybe not. Um, Sarah said no to this one. <laughs> I'll read the Bible passage, but you're not hitting me in the face. <laughs> so, uh, for me to hit someone on the right cheek with my right hand would mean, a, a, like, a back slap. You know, so this kind kind of slap was like a mark of degradation, I can't say that word. So, you know, the kind of slap a master might give a a slave for for disobeying or um, the kind of slap an oppressor would use against his victim to shame them or to show who was boss, to remind everybody who's in charge. So if this person turned the other cheek, it would actually be impossible to hit them in this way again. So you'd have to use your other hand or your fists, which would be seen as a kind of fighting reserve for equals. So in turning the, the other cheek, what this person is actually doing is not giving permission for this to continue um, but is demanding that they are treated as an equal proving that they have this higher worth and value than the one currently being shown it's amazing isn't it you don't get that just from reading the Bible, do you? You just need, to, you know, you need somebody awesome like Walter Wink to explain the context of it. So I thought that was pretty cool, but the tunic thing is even better. So the Roman Empire, they um, they taxed the wealthy, uh, the wealthy heavily to pay for, you know, their crusades and empires and, and wars. And this led to the wealthy then oppressing the poor even more. So they placed these like huge taxes on land and ridiculous interest rates on debts. And in Jewish law. Deuteronomy 24, 10 to 13, if you want to look it up. If someone owed you money, you could actually take their tunic as a pledge that the money would be paid back. So if you gave this person your cloak as well, you would be naked. So in Jewish culture, if you were naked in public, the shame wasn't actually on you. It was on the person who saw you naked. So again, another little... um, evidence of that check out Genesis 9 21 to 24 which is the story of Noah for those that are familiar when his sons found him drunk awkward but yeah he he was naked and the shame was on them not Noah for being naked because that's just how how you know Hebrew culture works so um imagine that kind of happening in public you know that the realization of the debtor when he realizes that his actions are you know taking everything that person has to the point where they're actually naked so this act was an act again of taking the shame of the person who was in debt and placing it on the debtor who was oppressing this person and then finally then this uh, extra mile go the extra mile well again in roman military law a soldier could command a jew to carry their pack for a mile so they could just stop a jew on the street and say you carry this um, and it was you know heavy military gear but any further than a mile would mean the soldier would break that law and then could be subject to like floggings or fines or even worse so if a jew carried a soldier's pack for a mile and then offered to go another mile the roman soldier would i think probably be horrified and would be trying to get the pack back so i've got this like funny image of imagining a roman soldier like running after a jew who's refusing to give their pack back after a mile but again, it's this idea of, of you know, reversing shame, of, um, you know, putting the, like, the spotlight, I guess, on the action, what the, what the oppressor is actually doing, rather than just kind of letting it continue. And these are all examples of something that Walter Wink calls the third way. 
And again, that might be a phrase that you've, you've come across before. So that's the idea that, that culture often gives us these two options. So, you know, blind submission, just go along with it, um, or violent resistance. But Jesus gives us this creative sort of third option involving neither. And this creative third way is how we might choose to respond to violence or injustice as a follower of Jesus. So you're probably sitting there thinking, that's really great, Joe. I already know that responding to evil with violence is probably not the way uh, that I'm going to go. And I think, you know, it's fair to say that most of us probably wouldn't, hopefully, respond violently uh, when somebody does something to us. And I think, you know, it's not really within our culture, is it, to do that. It's also against the law uh, to be physically violent towards another person. And so maybe you're thinking, well, that might be helpful for people in different countries or, you know, world leaders or ruthless dictators. But actually, how does this sort of impact us today in the here and now? And I think that's probably all on your definition of violence. Um, and the World Health Organization define violence like this, which I think is a really interesting definition. So violence is the intentional use of physical force or power, threatened or actual, against oneself, against another person, or against a group or community, which either results in or has a high likelihood of resulting in injury, death, psychological harm, maldevelopment, or deprivation. So violence isn't just physical. It can be psychological. It can be emotional. It can even just be threatened rather than it actually happening. But it comes back to this idea of power and how we use power, the intentional use of power to harm someone else. And when you actually think of it like that, being honest, I think we're all capable of violence. You know, when we send a, a passive-aggressive or attacking email, you know, you could say that's violent. When we leave a nasty comment on a social media post, when we exclude someone or a group of people, when we respond to someone pulling out in front of us in the car by tailgating them, all of that, you could say, is potentially violent. When we use our power, our privilege, our influence to control someone else or a group of people, that could be violence. And we're not just capable of violence, I think we're also capable of blind submission too, aren't we? Perhaps when we fail to challenge that sexist or homophobic joke at work or school. When we continue to purchase things from companies that exploit their workers and don't pay them a fair wage. When we fail to speak out about injustice or actively work for change. Controversial one, but maybe even when we vote for a political party that prioritises the rich rather than the poor. When we're silent, we're complicit. We're blindly submitting to powers and principalities that crush and oppress other people. Kind of hate this quote, but it's, it's amazing. Martin Luther King Jr. He who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetrate it. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. It's a hard one, isn't it? And if you hoped that you could be, you know, a bit neutral and pick a side, is what Desmond Tutu says about that. <laughs> if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. So maybe some of this perhaps has more relevance to us than we first thought. And we're all human, aren't we? We all have the capacity to cause harm to one another, to use violence or the threat of violence to control others or, or get them back for something to be silent or complicit in the face of evil. And so we're all actually still facing that choice between blind submission or violent resistance. 
But Jesus gives us this creative third way, asking how can we break the chain, break the cycle? How can we work for shalom in ourselves and the world around us, as Gaynor was talking about last week? And again, I think it comes back to this idea of justice. So um, when I was 15 years old, I was sat in a wall, on a wall, not in a wall, um, on our school, uh, in our school playground with my friends. And it was the middle of a lunch break. We were just sort of chatting as normal, just an ordinary day. And I suddenly noticed a girl in my year who I didn't know very well at all called Anna walking very quickly towards us. And she looked incredibly angry and had a group of people walking behind her. And before I knew what was happening, she walked straight up to me and punched me in the face. The force of the blow sort of knocked me backwards and nearly off the wall. And as I just about managed to sort of pull myself back onto it, she punched me again. This time I fell forwards, managed to grab my bag and run. And before she could get to me, you know, teachers arrived, broke up the group that had gathered and she was escorted to the head's office. I, at this point, was locked in a toilet cubicle, holding my throbbing face and shaking from head to toe in absolute shock at what had happened. I'd never spoken to this girl. I had no idea why she'd just done what she'd done. And I eventually found out another girl had told her I'd said something nasty about her brother who had recently died of cancer. I mean, I'd never met this girl. I'd never said anything like that. It was a total lie. The police were called and Anna was charged with assault. And the situation just massively escalated. So that entire, our entire year group was then sort of split into two halves. Those who believed me and were on my side and those who were on Anna's side. I faced daily arguments, comments, people who used to be my friends who would no longer speak to me. And as a 15-year-old, it pretty much ruined my life. And I developed an absolute hatred for Anna. So she'd done something evil to me. And in my view at the time, there was no justice, not really. In the months that followed, our kind of mutual hatred continued. And friends tried hard to keep us away from each other. Teachers separated us and ensured we were never in the same room. And about a year later, it was GCSE results day, and I was flying high. I'd done well, enough to go to a college that was as far away from school as I could find. And I was, yeah, just really happy, couldn't believe it. And as I walked out of the school, results envelope in hand, ready to go and celebrate with my friends, I noticed Anna, leaning against a wall with her head in her hands, sobbing. She'd failed, she was alone, she couldn't go to the college that she wanted to go to. And I thought, good as I walked off. Finally, some justice. You know, she deserved it. She deserved to be punished. And finally, there it was, you know, retribution. And a couple of weeks later, uh, there was this party. And it was probably the only person in our year who'd managed to somehow stay friends with both of us, invited us both to this party. And I saw my opportunity for revenge. And a lot of people were there. You know, everyone was drunk, including me. And I waited for my moment, and it came. So I took my friend's phone when she wasn't looking and I found Anna's number. I saved it on my phone and then I found a quiet corner where no one could see me and I sent horrible message after horrible message to Anna. Violence. I told her she was a loser, a failure, that she deserved all of it. I said every nasty thing I could think of saying. All the things I'd wanted to say for an entire year because I wanted to hurt her like she'd hurt me. And I did, with a weapon I knew how to use well, my words. Reciprocal justice. And I thought it would feel good. And you know what, for like about 10 seconds, it felt amazing. <laughs> 
And then almost instantly, I just felt awful. I felt ashamed and empty. I felt guilty. I knew what I'd done was wrong. And all that anger and pain I felt, they were still there. They hadn't changed. And I think that's the thing about redemptive violence or justice that's retributive or reciprocal. It just doesn't work. It doesn't make anything better. It doesn't make anyone feel good. It doesn't heal the victim or change the offender or replace what was taken. It doesn't fix things. It continues the cycle of harm and destruction. We've got to find a new way, a third way, a way that's about true justice and shalom. And after um, a year of college, the situation with Anna was, was mostly a distant memory for me. Until one night when I was sitting in a pub with some friends from my Saturday job and my phone rang. And it was a number I didn't recognise. I answered it. And it was Anna. She explained that her and our mutual friend, who somehow, again, had still managed to stay friends with both of us, uh, were meeting up and asked if I wanted to join them. She said she thought it'd be good for us to talk about what happened when we were at school. She said she wanted to explain it from her side and she wanted to hear about how it had impacted me. And nervously, I agreed. And we met. And that conversation was healing for us both. I listened to her explanation of why she'd done what she had, how someone had told her something that had triggered something in her, this deeply painful, painful experience of loss. And she, in that moment, had lost control. She talked about the impact of being arrested, having her fingerprints taken, being put in a cell. She talked about the devastation my messages had caused her, how deeply they'd hurt her and made her feel worthless. And I explained the impact on me, the months of conflict and fear that followed the incident, the shock and humiliation of being punched repeatedly in front of the whole school for something I hadn't done, the feeling of injustice when the school did very little to punish her or protect me. Losing friends, losing confidence, and being consumed by hatred. We both apologised to each other, and we meant it. We made peace, and we agreed to leave it behind us. The next day, we walked together through the town my old school was in on our way to catch the bus together. And we bumped into a couple of people from our old school who literally gasped and pointed as they saw us together, laughing and chatting. We even walked past one of my old teachers who smiled and said, thank God you two finally sorted things out. I remember feeling light and free for the first time in a long time, like things were as they should be again, like I was who I should be again. Shalom. Restorative justice, justice that heals, that restores, that makes things right. That kind of justice feels like shalom and it doesn't just impact the victim and the offender, it impacts the whole community. And of course my own example is a trivial small one, but it's a pattern and a principle you can see in much bigger stories of injustice. I mentioned Shane Claiborne's book, Executing Grace, which is about Shane's tireless work to stop the death penalty in the US. And he tells many stories of how the death penalty does nothing to heal or repair the damage those offenders have done and how many of them are victims themselves. He also tells stories of amazing hope about how this creative third way has been applied by people impacted by the death penalty in the US. In Jesus, I think we see the ultimate example of responding to evil with this creative third way. Jesus was captured, tortured and murdered by the Roman Empire. You know, he had all of the power of heaven at his disposal. He could have escaped, killed them all, taken down the empire. But he allowed himself to be murdered by the empire who thought that was the end of the story. 
you know, what better creative third way than to actually defeat death itself, to show that no power or principality or system or empire can defeat love or the source of love. Through the cross and through his death and resurrection, Jesus showed the ultimate form of nonviolent resistance and his third way made a way for all of us to experience this same resurrection power. You know, it's, it's, it's why I'm a Christian. You know, I was writing this going, I love this stuff. <laughs> because it's nobody, you know, nobody, not a person or power in this universe can do what Jesus did. Um, and, you know, who enables us to do the same. And it's why so many of us have chosen to pour our lives into this, into projects like the pantry, into a, a model of church that welcomes and includes everyone, into sorting the building out so it continues to be this place where, it, where people experience the shalom of God. You know, we're a movement, we're changing the world, and we're doing that with the power of Jesus. So, when someone does evil, let's not respond with violence in any sense of that word. But let's ask God by his spirit to inspire us to find these creative third ways so that we can bring healing and shalom to ourselves, to those who have hurt us, and to our whole communities. So when someone pulls out in front of you, Maybe let someone else go or let someone else out when you next have the chance. When someone sends you a nasty email, give them a call and have a conversation about it. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Break the cycle and dispel the myth of redemptive violence. And for the big things, you know, for the things that just feel so out of our control, like Ukraine and Russia, well, we start, don't we, by praying. And when we can, where we can, speak out. And we show what it looks like. We show what it looks like in our own lives. And when we feel like we maybe can't make a difference, let's maybe remember stories like this one. So one of the things that's given me quite a lot of hope the last couple of weeks has been the final, finally, the resignation of Boris Johnson. Um, and I noticed the news about um, Sajid Javid, the former health secretary. So he resigned from the government recently. And that triggered this sort of wave of resignations and ultimately led to the resignation of Boris Johnson. And he uh, was asked by the BBC News what caused his decision to resign. Um, and here's what he said. It might sound strange, but I was at the par parliamentary prayer breakfast listening to this sermon by this amazing man, Reverend Les Isaac. You know, he started Street Pastors. I was listening to him talking about the importance of integrity in public life. And just focusing on that, I made up my mind. I went straight back to my office and drafted the resignation letter and went to see the Prime Minister later in the day. Isn't that amazing? We can change things. We can break cycles, break chains. We can stop the cogs of oppression from turning. We can bring shalom, true restorative justice, justice that heals and restores and repairs. So let's do it, and let's do it together. You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org.